Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast for Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Ben Johnson talks about the future of direct indexing. Christine Ben shares valuable tips for pre-retirees. David Harrell shows us how to find a stable dividend. And Ed Slot prepares investors for possible tax changes. Let's get started. Here are Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. In mid-July, Vanguard made its first ever acquisition, buying direct indexing firm JustInvest. Here today to talk about what the benefits and drawbacks are of direct indexing, as well as discuss the future of direct indexing, is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Director of Global ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with talking a little bit about what direct indexing is and who's doing it. Yeah, it's it's a great question. And for anybody who can remember the old Mike Myers sketch from Saturday Night Live, Coffee Talk, where he played a character named Linda Richmond, direct indexing is is neither direct nor indexing, I would argue. So let's discuss. And and why direct indexing is, is really called direct indexing is that it is a capability, it's a way of building a portfolio that meets very specific needs of individual investors that more often than not starts with an index. So it might start with a total US stock market index, for example, and then it takes into account a a variety of circumstances, a variety of preferences that are unique to that specific individual as it pertains to their tax situation, as it pertains to their preferences under the umbrella of ESG as it pertains to their desire to achieve maybe better than out market outcomes by betting on different factors like value and or momentum. So from that starting point, what a direct indexed strategy does is it tailors that index to meet those specific needs, to understand those specific circumstances, to try to optimize for things like taxes or ESG preferences or factor exposures. So where that lands an investor is in something that looks very different from the starting point, from that broad-based market cap-weighted index, but has been cut to fit their preferences and is ultimately going to take the shape of a separately managed account. And how they get from that starting point to that tailored portfolio is increasingly some sort of software application that brings to bear all of the data around taxes and tax preferences and tax lots, ESG criteria, factor exposures, you name it, and takes data from the end investor to arrive at that outcome, which is a customized portfolio designed to meet the specific needs of that investor. So what are the benefits then of these customized portfolios? Well, for most investors, uh, and most of the investors I should stress that have used direct indexing historically, tend to be high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. So the minimum sort of entry point for a lot of these portfolios is somewhere between a quarter of a million or half a million dollars, no different than traditional separate accounts. And what you see is that oftentimes they come to sit across the table from their advisor or an asset manager with an existing portfolio of securities or maybe even a portfolio that has a very large concentration in, say, their employer's security if they work for a publicly traded firm. 
And what they want to do is, is to avoid liquidating those securities and, and build a portfolio around them so that they avoid unlocking any tax costs, any taxable gains that they may have in the portfolio that they come to the table with. On an ongoing basis, direct indexing also allows for security by security tax loss harvesting. So those tax gains, that tax alpha potential of direct indexing is, is really for a long time been one of its primary points of appeal. Now, at the margin, what becomes more appealing to a larger number of investors is mass customization. As I said before, the ability to build a portfolio that meets your very specific ESG needs, your very specific ESG criteria on a stock-by-stock -stock level, as opposed to maybe buying an individual ESG mutual fund or ETF off the shelf that's designed to meet the preferences of a broad base of investors, but might not meet your specific preferences. So mass customization, the ability to design a portfolio that meets your specific needs, that's, I think, the broader appeal and, and will be for some time of direct indexing. So then let's, let's look at the flip side, Ben. What are some of the drawbacks of direct indexing? Well, I think there are a number of drawbacks. Even if you look at the primary benefits of, of direct indexing, and I mentioned before, a lot of that has to do with trying to generate tax alpha to regularly create uh, realized losses, to offset gains, to build a portfolio around an existing portfolio that may have big embedded gains. At some point, that portfolio becomes what is called locked up, that all the securities in that portfolio are in gains, and there are no more losses to realize. So the, the shelf life of, of that particular feature may be limited depending on what's in the prevailing market. There might not be opportunities to realize those losses and generate that tax alpha, if you will. One of the other detriments is that it's incrementally more costly than building, say, a portfolio of broadly diversified ETFs. Uh, there are fees involved, and those fees tend to be, in many cases, a multiple of what you would pay for a, a broad-based portfolio of low-cost active funds, ETFs, or mutual funds, you name it. The other element is, is that it's more difficult to measure some of the costs that you can't see in direct indexing, the costs involved in regularly turning over that portfolio. So there are frictional costs that need to be uh, accounted for as well. And then the last cost, and in, in what I would argue might be the most important one, is the potential opportunity cost of direct indexing. And, and what I mean by that is that for all intents and purposes, direct indexing allows individual advisors or, or the investor themselves to basically become a discretionary stock picker. The preferences that they input into this model are going to yield a portfolio that's different from the broad market, from a broad-based index fund. And that may, over a long period of time, result in better risk-adjusted returns than they might have gotten from a broadly diversified portfolio of index funds. It might result in worse returns. Looking forward into the future, you, you just don't know on day one. But nonetheless, it makes a large number of investors effectively active managers. And what we know about active management, about being different from the market, really, in, in any way, is that Sometimes it's going to look right and feel good, and sometimes it's going to look wrong and feel bad. So 
that goodness or badness you know, could be an opportunity cost to investors. There could be circumstances where they would have been better served, they would have gotten greater returns with less risk by simply just owning a portfolio of broad-based index mutual funds or, or discretionary active funds. And then lastly, Ben, several other asset managers, including BlackRock and J.P. Morgan, have also purchased direct indexing firms. So how widespread do you think direct indexing is going to become over time? Well, I think it's going to become more commonplace over over time. And I think what you've seen with the raft of acquisitions that we've seen just over the course of the past year plus is that the asset managers are, are jockeying for position. They want to offer greater breadth of choice to meet the diverse needs of a diverse investor base. They have clients that come to them with any number of different unique circumstances. And this isn't going to necessarily be you know, silver bullet. It's, it's not going to be a solution that is going to meet the needs for all investors. I, I think it could very well continue to meet the needs of, of some. Now that said, what I expect to see is that there will be efforts made to bring direct indexing to smaller investors over time. As I mentioned before, Historically, this has really been the reserve of high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. What you see in moves that have been made in recent time by the likes of Charles Schwab, for example, moving towards zeroing out stock trade commissions, moving towards offering fractional share trading. So I don't have to buy a whole share of Amazon. I can buy a slice of a share of Amazon. I, I really see that as the necessary groundwork to open up direct indexing to a more mass affluent audience, to a broader number of investors. And indeed, sticking with Schwab's case for now, they acquired the legacy assets of Motif, which was an upstart that really, for all intents and purposes, was looking to do exactly this, to make something that looks like direct indexing available to a broader spectrum of individual investors. So I think directionally, that's where we're going to see more and more firms headed in the coming years is towards widening out this capability to a larger audience of their investors. Well, this is really fascinating. Looks like we could be, you know, at the start of something that could turn out to be a pretty big thing for investors of all types. Thank you for your time today, Ben. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. explains how pre-retirees can practice for retirement. Hi, I'm Susan Chabinski from Morningstar. Retirements have accelerated over the past year thanks to a combination of strong market performance and the pandemic. But before you hang it up, Morningstar's Christine Benz thinks it's a good idea to trial run your retirement. She's here with me today to discuss that concept. Hi, Christine. Nice to see you. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. So you think it's a valuable exercise for pre-retirees to go through a bit of a discovery process before they go ahead and retire. What's the first step in that process? Well, I think the first step is to think about your work and thinking, think about what aspects of it you still enjoy and those aspects that you really have no time for, no room for, and kind of just start keeping some notes on those matters. Because certainly everything we know about retirement planning is 
if you can shorten the length of retirement because you have continued to find gratification in work, that really helps financially. So start with that job, then spend some time thinking about your actual non-work activities, the things that you kind of want to pull forward in retirement. These are maybe things that you right now just sort of tuck around the margins of your life because you really don't have time. So start thinking about the contours of that, how pulling some of those activities forward might change how you choose to spend your days. And then last but not least, think hard about lifestyle considerations. So for many retirees, relocation or partial relocation to second homes might be part of the equation. Think about whether you'll be relocating. Think about what your spouse's plans are. I think couples very much should approach retirement planning as couples where they're thinking about their respective visions for retirement and those two things might not match up. Those retirement dates might not match up. So start thinking about your plans as a couple and think think about if your spouse is working, what is his or her plan for a retirement date? So start with some of those lifestyle things. So the idea of a trial run of your retirement is very compelling. How can someone go about trying to do that? Well, I think the key is to think about your situation with work. If you're a long tenured person where you have a lot of vacation time, or perhaps you work for a small employer where you have maybe some wiggle room to negotiate extra time off. In that instance, you may want to think about using some of that vacation block to actually spend time at home experimenting with 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 what retirement might feel like for you. So if you wanted to pull certain activities forward, like golf or volunteering more often, you can spend more of your days doing those activities. I would also take stock of how your spending patterns change during that period. You may find that you have more time to make meals at home, or maybe you're going out all the time. Whatever it might be, there, there may be takeaways for your retirement plan and for your budget budget as a result of having having taken this long break from work. What would you suggest for people who may not have, say, a block of vacation time they could use, or maybe those who are sort of nearing retirement age and they don't want to possibly telegraph <laughs> that, right. their test, that, their trial, that their trial running their retirement? What are some things they could try out? There are a few different ideas. One is to take sort of a mini version of some of the uh, vacation time that we talked about. So maybe just use a week to do some of the activities we just talked about if your vacation is shorter. Um, you might also think about incorporating some of the activities into your day-to-day -day life. So I know for a lot of us, we say, well, when, when I retire, I'm going to exercise more and volunteer and read a book a week. See if you can't start making small changes to make some of those things happen while you're still working. And I would also note, Susan, is that through this period, many people have determined that they have a little bit more flexibility in terms of where they work than they did pre-pandemic. A lot of employers are really loosening up about having everyone be in the workplace. So if your employer is somewhat flexible, maybe you can experiment with a different location even while you're continuing to work away from what had been your home base. So I would say get creative, but the idea is that you're not hanging it up and retiring and experiencing something like retirement for the first time. You'll have dabbled a little bit and figured, kind of figured out what you want to do beforehand. 
So let's pivot and talk more about the financial aspect of this now. How can you trial run that financial aspect of retirement? Right. I mentioned that these mini breaks might be a good way to see how your spending habits might change. And again, you're just observing, not necessarily making judgments, just observing those. And the other thing I would note is that you definitely would want to take stock of how your budget might change. Um, many people expect that they will spend less in retirement. You know, you hear these uh, sort of 75% or 80% income replacement rates in retirement that, that people often use as kind of a baseline in retirement planning. Well, there's a lot of variability in those numbers. And we know that higher income people tend to spend a lower percentage of their working income than 75 or 80 percent on average. They're more like in the 60 percent range, whereas lower income workers are at a higher level. So if cutting costs in retirement is a big part of making your retirement plan work, really think about how your personal spending may or may not change. And lastly, Christine, you've written a very popular article on Morningstar.com about how you used Morningstar's six-week sabbatical, which we get every four years as employees at Morningstar. And you you dubbed it, this is how I spent my faux-tirement. And it was sort of your trial run of, of retirement. What were some of your key takeaways from that experience? Yeah, this was back in 2017. And um, I took a nice trip with my husband for our then 25th anniversary. But after that, I had a whole month at home. And I did come up with a few takeaways. One is that I loved that my powers of concentration improved during that period. I, I am always multitasking across things. In fact, I always know approximately what time it is within the pa within sort of like a five-minute window. And I found that I was really able to stay on task, stay focused. I wasn't jumping from one thing to the next. Another takeaway for me, Susan, was that balance was so important, that the days that I thought were my best days were the days where I knocked off some task or did something that I had really been meaning to do, and then balanced that with something that was really fun, whether it was a great dinner or time with friends or whatever it was. And I think that's an important takeaway that I'll bring into retirement. This, Not that I'm retiring soon, but... <laughs> This idea of balance and trying to continue to get stuff done, even when I when I retire, I think will be really important for me. It's not just going to be kicking back because getting stuff done helps you appreciate your relaxation time that much more. Right. Well, Christine, thank you so much. This is a great concept to trial run the retirement, and I'm going to think about how I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> thank you for your thank time. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Chavinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, David Harrell from Morningstar Investment Management tells us the signs of a healthy dividend. Hi, I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar. Many investors rely on dividend stocks for income. So how can they figure out which dividends are stable and which may not be? Joining me today to discuss a few factors dividend investors should consider is David Harrell. David is an editorial director with Morningstar Investment Management and editor of Morningstar Dividend Investor. David, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. So one factor that Morningstar says contributes to dividend stability is an economic moat. So can you tell us a little bit about Morningstar's economic moat rating and then bring that to the relationship with dividend stability? Sure. So economic moat 
is a phrase that Morningstar analysts borrowed from Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway. And it's basically a way of thinking about or visualizing a company's ability to defend itself from competition. Uh, so no company exists in isolation. So you have a firm that's earning high rates of return on capital. All else being equal, you expect its competitors to eventually sort of compete that advantage away. Uh, so Morningstar analysts look at a number of uh, moat factors which they think contribute to a company's ability to hold off competition. Uh, and if a company has enough of those factors that they can hold off, or the analysts believe they can hold off competition for 10 years or more, they would award that company a narrow moat rating. Uh, if they think they could sustain their competitive advantages for 20 years or more, they would award it a wide moat rating. Now, a moat rating does not guarantee dividends, of course, uh, but we have seen some very strong correlations between economic moats and dividend sustainability. Uh, for example, in 20, for 2020, uh, Dan Lefkowitz from Morningstar's Indexes Group uh, looked at dividend-paying company stocks, uh, dividend-paying companies around the world, and uh, looked at those that had cut their dividends and those that hadn't. And he found a very strong correlation. So the wide moat companies were the least likely to have cut their dividends. The no moat companies were the most likely to have cut their dividends. And the narrow moat companies came in between. And this echoes something I, I found a few years ago. I was looking uh, through the Morningstar universe of US companies and found the exact same correlation. So wide moat companies over the previous three years were most likely to have increased their dividends, the least likely to have decreased them, and no moat companies were the most likely to have cut their dividends and the least likely to have raised, the, uh, of, to have raised them. Uh, so again, it's no guarantee uh, but the, the moat, having a wide moat seems to point to income or sort of stability of earnings uh, that is going to, uh, you're not going to have sort of an earnings crunch that would force the firm to uh, cut or suspend its dividend. Now, strong finances is another thing that, you know, dividend seekers should be sort of looking out for if they're trying to find stocks with durable dividends. What specifically should they be looking at? Well, if you think about the dividend payment, it's sort of, you know, as cash flows through a corporation, dividends are sort of come at the end. Uh, so you want a, a company with a strong balance sheet. Uh, typically, you, you don't want a firm that is highly leveraged, that has a lot of debt, uh, has a lot of interest expense relative to, um, you know, operating profit. Um, so uh, that's something to look for. It's also important to look at a company's history and maybe over an entire economic cycle, how has it held up during a previous economic downturn or even a sort of an industry or sector specific crisis? Has it been able to maintain its dividend during that time period? Uh, so there I would look at uh, perhaps the five-year dividend growth rate, annualized dividend growth rate, uh, to see if, if the company has a strong history of being able to increase its dividend. And finally, I would take a, I would I would consider the management and board's attitude towards the dividend. Um, you know, are they very supportive of the dividend and their capital allocation decisions, or are things like you know buybacks or share repurchases uh, of greater importance to that firm? And there's a number of things you can look at. You know, even the shareholder letter. Uh, do they tout the dividend? Do they tout the dividend record that, you know, X number of years of uninterrupted dividend growth or uninterrupted dividend payments? Uh, maybe uh, read the transcripts of the quarterly earnings calls. Uh, there'll often be questions there about the dividend, and it's a good way to sort of see what management is thinking. 
again, it's not a guarantee, but if you have a corporate culture in place where management is very supportive of the dividend, I think those firms, uh, if they do have sort of an earnings crunch, are going to be less likely to immediately suspend or cut their dividend. Now, another factor to look at is the payout ratio. Tell us a little bit about what that is. So the payout ratio is very simple math. It's simply the annual dividend paid divided by the earnings per share. So you have a firm that's paying $1.50 per quarter in dividends at $6 a year. If that firm had earnings per share of $10, it'd have a payout ratio of 60%. So then is a low, out, is a low payout ratio always a sign of a healthy dividend? In general, uh, there's a couple things, a couple of ways to think about the payout ratio. So certainly, if a company has a low payout ratio, that means it's it's devoting a relatively small portion of its earnings to dividends. So there's room to grow. Uh, also, you can think of the payout ratio as sort of a safety factor in that. Uh, take our hypothetical company with a 60% payout ratio. Uh, in theory, that firm's earnings could drop by 40% and it would still be able to maintain its current dividend. Uh, but when looking at payout ratios, I think it's something you want to look at in context uh, to both the firm's history and then other, other companies in the same sector or industry. Uh, certainly different industries, you'll see sort of different trends in payout ratios. Something like utilities, uh, you're more likely to see higher payout ratios. Uh, so certainly a firm could have a high payout ratio, and that might just simply indicate that this is a management team that's very devoted to returning cash to shareholders via the dividend, um, and it might seem high by itself, uh, but if you know the earnings appear stable and there's low debt, they can certainly continue to increase that dividend even with a current high payout ratio. And then also keep in mind what sector you're looking at, because something like a real estate investment trust, for example, the payout ratio probably isn't uh, the best metric to look at for dividend uh, sustainability. There you would look at something called adjusted flows from operation operations. So uh, you know, think about the payout ratio, uh, you know, what sector you're looking at, and then relative to other firms in that sector. So if you see something that's quite a bit higher, then you know, that might be more of a cause for concern. Uh, but you know, think of it in context. And then lastly, are there any other factors that we haven't discussed that dividend investors should be thinking about or looking at when they're trying to assess a, a dividend stability? Well, I, I think you know, if you're looking at dividend stocks, it's very tempting to take a stock universe and rank by yield from highest to lowest, and then get excited about some from high yield numbers like oh, that's six eight you know six mm -hmm. eight nine percent. And I just caution anyone to be very careful there, uh, because why is the yield so high? Is it because the dividend rate is 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 just zoomed up? It's more likely when you see those high yield numbers, it's because the stock price has cratered because yield is simply the dividend divided by the stock price. And if you've seen the stock price plummet, there's probably very good reason for that, uh, that investors are very concerned about a firm's earnings and its ability to continue, continue to fund that dividend. Uh, so, so that would be, be, be my caution there is, uh, you know, certainly you might find a company that looks appealing based on the yield number, uh, but you can't stop there because you don't want to get a, a sort of a, you know, a trap there where uh, your 6% yield turns into 2 or 3% when that firm is forced to cut its dividend. 
Well, David, thank you so much for your time today for helping us suss out where we might be able to see what is a dividend grower and what might not be as likely to grow or even be stable. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Shabinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly this week, tax expert Ed Slot uncovers some preemptive tax strategies. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. With prospective tax changes on the horizon, is now the right time to start gifting assets and pursuing other such strategies? Joining me to discuss that topic is tax and retirement planning expert, Ed Slott. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Great to be back with you, Christine, thanks. It's great to have you here. I'd like to start by talking about where we are with prospective changes to the tax code under the new administration. Can you outline some of the proposals under consideration and sort of where they are in the pipeline? Well, the big items, and again, the key word is proposals, but you have to know about that to plan because let's look at the SECURE Act that happened a few years ago. That gave us 11 days to plan. If you remember, that was enacted, I think, on on December 20th, and you had 11 days to scurry around and plan So, because it was effective January 1st. So we don't even know where these proposals are going. Uh, First thing, if I was a betting man, not that I would go to Las Vegas, but if I was a betting man, uh, the one of the proposals said some of these changes may be retroactive back to April. I don't think that's going to happen. I would bet heavily against that because we're too far into the year. And it just has a sour taste to change the rules where people already made decisions to go retroactive. I don't think we'll see that. So anything we're talking about now, I think if it does happen, it's going to be effective January 1st. So it's a good time to have this discussion, be aware of the issues, because you do have time to plan if you want to make plans. So some of the things they're talking about, basically income tax, capital gains, and estate and gift tax are the big issues, where all the big money is. So the income tax, uh, maybe they want to raise the rates on people that make $400,000 or more, but there's all kinds of Uh, all kinds of permutations to that. We don't really know where that's going to go. And it may even uh, affect people that are under 400,000, but they're over uh, 400,000 for one year. Somebody sells their house. Uh, There was just a story in, I think the Wall Street Journal recently called the one year millionaire. (laughs) So for one year, all of a sudden it hits you. So that brings us to the capital gains rates, which is a preferred rate. You could pay 20%, 23.8. They're thinking making that equal to ordinary rates, which can run over 40% if you add in that extra 3.8% tax on net investment income for higher earners. So if they made them the same, the only time that ever happened before was in the 80s. And I think it only lasted a couple of years. So that would take a lot of the planning off the table because where everybody tries to get capital gains, now it might be treated like ordinary income. I don't know if we'll see that. Uh, Then Probably the biggest change and the one that will uh, hurt a lot of people that weren't planning on it is the elimination of something called step up in basis for capital gains, for long-term capital gains. To uh, Just to give you a quick example, if you bought your home for, say, $100,000 many years ago and now it's worth $2 million, uh, th- that gain would be relieved at death or, or a stock. 
you bought a stock for 100,000, now it's worth 5 million. Your beneficiaries pick it up at 5 million. All the income tax on that appreciation is eliminated at death. So not only do they want to eliminate that big benefit for the appreciation, but they want to tax it at death or some other transfer as if you sold it. I think that's a nightmare waiting to happen, even though you didn't sell it. So where are you going to get the money to pay the tax just because it appreciated then at death? I, I think this is a loser provision. It would, it would be a mess. Plus, they would have to couple it and fix the estate tax because then you'd have it included for income and estate tax. And by the way, that may sound awful, but what I just described is an IRA. An IRA was always subject to income tax and estate tax, which is why I love Roth IRAs, at least it eliminates the income tax still included in the estate. So I think that may be a bridge too far, but if you're worried about that, maybe you wanna sell some of your winners now for the stocks, lock in today's low capital gain rates. And here's a nice play, use some of the proceeds from that to pay the tax on a Roth conversion. If you're worried about higher taxes in the future on your IRA, move more of that to the Roth. So use those proceeds to pay the tax on a Roth conversion. You may want to look at that. Uh, also on the estate tax side, estate and gift tax, we have a huge exemption now, over $11 million, 11.7 million. There's talk of lowering that. Uh, so you may want to take advantage of using some of those, uh, some of that exemption now during lifetime, which it can still be used for the rest of 2021 through lifetime gifting, uh, we don't know where that's going to go next year. So you may want to lock in some of the things you know, the low tax rates, the low capital gain rates, and the large estate exemptions. Now, if you want to wait till the end of the year, because we don't know what's going to happen. A lot of this can wait till year end. But bigger assets like the sale of a business, you have to get the wheels going now. For example, if you want to sell a stock, the law comes in December 20th, let's say, all right, you push the button, I'm selling. But you can't do that on selling like a piece of land or a business. You know, you may want to get the process going if you're truly worried about that to the point where you can push the button right at year end or not, if it seems like it may not be an issue. But these are things everybody has to think about because this is what's uh, been proposed in a number of different bills in Congress, none of which may come to anything, but you never know. Well, that was my question, Ed, is I think investors, people wrestle with how preemptive to be in terms of making changes to their portfolios, selling things, gifting things, if none of this is a done deal. Well, and so it's not a done deal, but I don't believe personally, my own opinion, again, not a betting man, <laughs> my own opinion that anything drastic, like some of the things that I think are a little extreme are not going to get passed because you have a 50-50 Senate. Uh, you know, you would need every Democratic senator to buy in. If one of them is sick, for example, it's not going to pass. So it has to be something more moderate, more in the middle that everybody can get behind. So I don't think you're going to see anything uh, extreme like some of the things I talked about actually get through. But I think they, if I had a bet again, they're going to do something because from the Democrats' point of view, and this is apolitical, I'm just saying, uh, 
if they don't do it now, nothing's going to happen in 2022. It's an election year and nothing's going to happen. So if they want to make the case that they did something, something's got to happen now. And to get that something to happen, they may have to give a little to get the 50 votes and go less extreme. People who are watching might be thinking, well, you know, he's talking about estate tax, gifting assets, all of this stuff is mainly relevant, they might be thinking, to people with a lot of money. You mentioned the very high estate tax exclusion currently. Is there relevance for people who don't have quite as much in assets in terms of some of these preemptive strategies? Yeah, it always falls on unintended people, like people who have a home, like I said before, that appreciated. Lots of people are in their homes for 30, 40 years. They have, look at the real estate market, incredible appreciation. Uh, these are these one-year millionaires. If they ever sold their home and they did it next year instead of this year, they could be losing half of what they would have had, maybe if these proposals go through, uh, what they would have kept after taxes this year. So it's a big difference. So even people that say of modest means that have a lot of money tied up in a home or a small business, they don't consider themselves wealthy. But at some point, if they want to sell out, they could be one of these one-year millionaires that gets trapped by these taxes supposedly on the wealthy. And that's the problem with it. A lot of this falls on unintended uh, taxpayers. Okay, Ed, really helpful information. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.